Let's read from the book of Galatians this morning, Galatians chapter 4. There's a rather long passage, so I will read it alone as you follow along on the screen together. In verse 21, it says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and the one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, this is a challenging text before us this morning, a text that, in all honesty, is going to be a little difficult to try to explain. And so, Father, uh, I pray for your power this morning. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds and fill our understanding with your word Lord, in a way that will cause us to see, just like the anthem we sang, that we need you every hour. There's not an hour, there's not a moment, a second of the day that we are able to do things in our own strength, that we're able to earn our own righteousness, that we're able to um, do things in a way that pleases you apart from your divine enablement. Father, without Christ, we are truly slaves. But in Christ, we are free. And I pray that that message will resonate this morning. Help us to see the freedom we have in you, freedom over sin, freedom over habits, freedom over doubts, freedom over despair. We, we need a lot of freedom in our country right now and not political freedom necessarily, but Lord, freedom just from despair and from all the different things that are happening to know that we are citizens of a different kingdom and that that kingdom has conquered the kingdoms of this world. And so, Lord, help us to understand that better as we look at this wonderful illustration of your saving grace that you inspired for the apostle this morning. Move me aside, and I pray that you would open our ears and our hearts to your word. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as you heard, this is a uh, very interesting text before us this morning. 
Maybe it's a text that you've never actually heard preached before because in all honesty, if I were not so committed to verse by verse preaching, I might've been tempted to skip over it. Uh, it is a, it's a challenging text. It's one that's going to require some time to unpack it all. And it's also challenging because of the way that some people have used it in the past uh, and, and how they use it to try to justify things that, that they do with the word of God. And so uh, those are things that I feel like are important enough that uh, we need to try to hit on them all. So we're going to take our time and I really don't think we're going to get through it all this morning. Uh, we'll probably come back to this text again next week. But, um, but for now, we're just going to look at it and, and just kind of try to pull out everything we can from it, from the word of the Lord. The Lord inspired this message. The Lord inspired this text. It is good for our teaching. It is good for our reproof and correction. And it is good for our instruction in righteousness. And therefore, we, want to, uh, we don't want to exclude it from our study of Galatians. You know, uh, it said that there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who divide everybody into two kinds and those who don't. And so uh, I don't, I, that seems to be true. You know, uh, some people say that you have Razorback fans and, uh, and LSU fans and the two shall never meet. Uh, some people say you have Republicans and Democrats. Some people say you have this and that. Bronco fans and Raider fans from the, play, from the area that I'm from. Uh, all kinds of different ways we can divide each other. And, uh, and then there's some people who say, oh, just don't do that. They, you know, there's kinds of people who divide everybody into two people and those who don't. Well, apparently Paul falls in the uh, former group. He is one who is not afraid to divide people into two different groups. And he does that this morning. And he says that there are two different kinds of people, just like there were two different mothers of two different children of Abraham, uh, just like there are two different uh, covenants and just like there are two different cities. And just right now, you can see how potentially confusing this text can be. We are talking about two women, two sons, two covenants, two cities. And all of that in the context of what Paul calls an allegory. And so the first thing we want to do this morning is just kind of talk about what Paul is doing. What is he doing with this text? And is this a way that we should treat the word of God? Uh, I absolutely believe that the Bible has one interpretation, one interpretation. And it is the interpretation that will be consistent with the historical, grammatical, contextual details of the text itself. It will also be consistent with the redemptive purposes of God's word. And any interpretation that is not consistent with those things is an interpretation that needs to be corrected. But you need to understand that the early church, uh, really beginning with a city called Alexandria, they started to uh, do a different kind of interpretation and they called it an allegory allegorical interpretation. That's a really big, fancy $3 word that Paul is actually using in our text. So I want to define it for you. The way that most people define allegory is that it is a, it is a deeper spiritual truth that ignores what the text actually means. 
In other words, we look at a text and we say, okay, if you, yeah, sure, if you were to read the text uh, properly, yeah, you would get this interpretation. But on the other hand, if you look at the deeper meaning, if you look at the deeper significance, if you look at the deeper this or deeper that, you're going to find all of these spiritual meanings that come out. And, and wow, that's where the real depth of the Christian life comes in. And they did this for about a thousand years. And, uh, and it really led the church down a very, very bad path. The church at all. There were exceptions, but it really led the church down a really bad road. The problem with allegory is that it is only limited by the interpreter's imagination. It is, it is what the Bible means to me type interpretation. And, and I'm sure you've had the experience before where you've been in a Bible study. You've had 13 people in your Bible study and, and you ask them what they think about this text and you have 13 different answers of what the text means to them. Have you ever had that experience? <laughs> it happens a lot. And the reason why is because oftentimes we are guilty of not paying attention to the details of the text and the background of the text, and the history of the text. I'm not going to lie to you. That's hard work. We just had a class on it. And some of the people, in all honesty, were, were kind of a little bit overwhelmed by it because they said this is a lot of work. But beloved, it is worth it because the Bible has one interpretation. And by the way, one of the greatest gifts of the Reformation was that they went back to the historical, grammatical interpretation of the Bible. Most of the early reformers received early training as lawyers. So Tim, there you go. You know, lawyers can do something good. So, so most, of the, most of the early reformers were trained early as lawyers. Therefore, they knew how to read a text. They knew how to understand it according to its purpose. And they brought that, those skills, into their interpretation of the Bible. And then they preached that. And it caused a revolution in the church. It caused a revolution in the world. It literally changed the world when the reformers went back to the text. In fact, you're going to see that that's been just about the cause of every major revival in history is when we stopped depending on all this other stuff, all the theatrics, all of the other things we try to do, and we just go back to the text. And when we preach the text, God's power goes out. That's one of the reasons why I preach the way I do, beloved. Listen, I'm not the best preacher in the world. I know that. I, I will never be a Billy Graham. I will never be a John MacArthur. Somebody mentioned David Jeremiah this morning. I'm not as good as him. I know that. But one thing I can say is that when you preach through the Bible verse by verse, you know when you come to church, God sets the agenda for the sermon. Not whatever we're supposed to be mad at on social media this week. Not, what we're, not whatever is going on, but God sets the agenda. That's one of the reasons. I, I, I hope that you can trust that. And you can because we go through the Bible as written. And so that, that is one of the greatest powers, one of the greatest gifts of the church is that we have the word of God and we teach it and we preach it and we go back to the text and it has one interpretation. In fact, I'm gonna be honest with you. When people say that the Bible has one interpretation but unlimited applications, I'm not even comfortable with that because it gives the impression that 
that any application you can come up with, so long as it is somehow kind of sort of derived from the text, then it's valid. No, there, there are controls over application. If you don't believe me, just look at the temptation of Jesus. When Satan, Satan quoted the Old Testament to him and said, hey, jump off the rock because it's written, he won't let you dash your feet. That's an application of the text, right? Unlimited application. Jesus should have done it, right? No, there's controls. There are exegetical controls over the application. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. It can never mean what it never meant. So that's why when, you know, sometimes I hear people say, Randy, this is, and I don't say this out loud. I mean, I will in this forum because I can get away with it, but I won't say it to them. But uh, somebody will say to me, well, you know, well, what this text means to me, totally irrelevant. Completely irrelevant. I don't care what it means to you. I care what it means to God. I care what it means to the original authors. And I care how that meaning applies to our life today. And so, so with that, with all of that, having said all of that, now we come to this text this morning and Paul seems to be doing something that basically denies everything that I just said. Paul seems to be taking a Bible story and bringing out spiritual significance of it that in all honesty, if you were to read it in the original Old Testament, you might not get the same kinds of things that Paul's getting out of it. And so you ask the question, well, wait a minute, Randy, is you say what you say, but now I'm looking at Paul doing something and he's doing something that seems to be totally different. What's going on here? What gives? And I think the problem is in verse 24, where Paul says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. You need to understand that when Paul wrote that word, it does not have the same baggage on it when he wrote it as it does today. It's kind of like the word Catholic. You know, you say the word Catholic, what does everybody think of? The Roman Catholic Church, right? But when the Apostles' Creed was written and it said, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, that's not what they were talking about. The word Catholic, all it means is universal. That's all it means. It's all the baggage that we've added to it later that, that brings all these problems. And in the same way, when Paul says this may be interpreted allegorically, he is simply doing what every good preacher does. He gave the theological argument in chapter two. He gave the biblical argument in chapter three. He continues this pleading and application and, and, and pleading with them to come back in chapter four. And like every good preacher, he's gonna end with what? An illustration. And that's all the word means, is an illustration. And so Paul is not denying, he's not ignoring the story of Abraham and Sarah. He's not, he's not pulling things out of it, but he's simply saying that, in fact, he flat out says it here. He says, guys, look, this can be illustrated this way. And then he brings out this illustration. I actually did this this week. I was talking with someone who was having a little trouble with, the, with understanding a particular doctrine. And I pointed them to a parable. And, and, I, and I was very quick to tell them, now this is not the meaning of the parable, but this is a good illustration of what we're talking about. And that's all that Paul is doing here. He's not authorizing 
this is what the Bible means to me type uh, theology. He's not, he's not giving his credence to that. He's simply saying, here's an illustration of what we're talking about. And as he says in, uh, in verse 21 of our text, that you who desire to be under the law, I'm going to give you one last illustration. I'm going to try to put this in your head in one more way. I'm going to try to end it in one last, uh, one last bruja, if you will. I'm going to try to get, put it in your head, just all different kinds of angles one way. That you who want to be under the law, you need to listen to what the law says. Do you not hear the law? Are you not reading the law? Because if you truly understood it, if you truly were hearing it, if you truly were listening to it, then you would be ecstatic. You would be rejoicing that you are free from the law. You want to go back to it? That can only mean that you're not really hearing it. That's all that can mean. So beloved, this morning as we begin to actually dive into the text, and I'm, and I'm sorry for that long, somewhat babbling introduction, but I think it's important enough for you guys to understand that, to understand what's happening here so we don't go off in funny directions. Beloved, and, and before we go on, let me just say this. This comes up in different ways in churches. Every church that does not guard the pulpit goes into heresy. Every church over all church history, every church that does not guard the pulpit goes into heresy in whatever form that takes. So beloved, we cannot subject the Bible to our own imaginations. We've got to teach it as written. We've got to preach it as written. And that's what this sacred desk is for. Whether we sing it, whether we pray it, whether we explain it, whether we teach it, whether we preach it, whether we proclaim it, whatever it is. And so, and so let's look. We, those of you who want to be under the law, those who think, who are tempted to go back to the law, you need to listen to the message of the law. You need to hear what the message of the law actually is. You need to understand what the law is actually telling you. And I don't know about you guys, but I sure am praising the Lord for the rain outside, amen? <laughs> amen, we've been needing that. My grass has been needing it anyway. So what will happen when we do that? Well, as we see in the text, there's gonna be three responses that we will have. Three responses that we will have. And so, and to be honest with you, I don't expect to get through all three of them today. So uh, we'll go back, we'll come back next week and finish up what we don't finish today. Three responses, number one, if when we listen to the message of God's law, we will learn to rely on his promise. We will learn to rely on his promise. Look at verses 22 and 23. It says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was, was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born according to the spirit. So, you know, Paul could not have given a better illustration of what he's talking about here. And not only because the legalists were, were comparing themselves to Abraham's true children, but, but not only that, but also because of this situation that happened in Abraham's life. And to, and to help you understand this passage, I want us to turn to Genesis chapter 15. And let's just, let's just look at this. Genesis 15. Now, I know most of you probably know the story this morning. 
but just in case, I don't like to make assumptions like that. Give you a little background here. Abraham, or Abram at this time, had been given the promise by God that he was going to be the father of a great nation. And that through him, all the nations of the world, the entire world was going to be blessed through this great nation. And yet, between Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, uh, some time had passed. And Abram had not, even, had not had many kids yet. I imagine that Abram, when he first heard this promise, he probably thought to himself that Sarah is going to have a lot of kids. And we're going to, you know, kind of like, kind of like Jacob did, you know, and a, whole, and a whole nation forms out of 12 youngins, right? So he probably thought something like that, that Sarah was going to have a lot of kids. And yet, as time has progressed, she has not even had one kid yet. And so by the time we get to Genesis 15, I think at this point, Abram is starting to understand that God's promise is not going to come through having many children, but God's promise is going to come through him having one child, one heir. I think he's beginning to understand that. You say, why do you say that? Because if you look, what does he do in chapter 15? He tries to make one of his servants the heir. So Abram is understanding a little bit of God's plan. He's understanding that this is not going to happen through many children, through Sarah. This is going to happen through one promised heir. So he's understanding God's plan. But what he's not understanding at this point is the miraculous nature of it. He doesn't understand that God is going to do this by supernatural means, not by fleshly means. And so he offers up um, this servant. He still thinks it has to be accomplished in his own flesh. And so he offers to settle it. And God tells him in verses four and five, he said, behold, the word of the Lord came, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then he reiterates the promise that there's going to be numerous children, as many of the stars and all that. And this is important. This is critical. Abram hears this promise, even though he is too old to have children at this point, even though Sarah is too old to have children at this point, he looks at the promise. He sees the vision of God that there's going to be innumerable children that will come through this one promised heir. And Abram puts his faith in that promise in verse 6. And by faith, he is accounted righteous. And I cannot stress the importance of verse 6. And if you listen to the Galatian uh, te text on, uh, on the videos, we already talked about that, so I'll go on. So Abram starts well. He begins by faith. And God solidifies the covenant in, a, uh, in kind of a blood covenant ceremony that you see there. So he's doing great in Genesis 15. But then chapter 16 comes along. And in chapter 16, just like before, Abram and Sarah begin to think that even though they have the promise of God, they've still got to complete it using fleshly means. They've got to hurry the process along. Don't you just wish sometimes God would speed up? <laughs> Don't you just wish he'd hurry up sometimes? So you can kind of understand Abram's and, and Sarah's problem here, right? I mean, you get it. You know, this has been years. We're talking years at this point. Still no kid. And so Sarah offers Hagar, or Hagar, however you want to pronounce it, 
she gives him to Abraham as a concubine. And by, by this union, she conceives and gives birth to Ishmael. That's why Paul says in Galatians that one is born according to the flesh. He, Abram fell into this trap of thinking that even though he begun by faith, he's got to complete God's will. He's got to complete the redemption of the world through his own fleshly ingenuity. And so they come up with this plan. And it leads to chaos absolutely leads to chaos. Just like some of the thinking in Galatia did, Abram had begun so well in faith, and yet he failed to rely on the promise. Instead, he began to try to bring about the promise through his own flesh. And he attempted to bring God's plan of redemption. And so Paul says in verse 23, Abram has two sons, not just one, two. One is born of the flesh, And one, Isaac, years later, born of the promise. It's easy to fall into that trap, beloved. It's easy to think that the gospel, that the gospel of faith alone in Christ alone is great for starting salvation. But then as we go through the years, we've got to perfect it in our own flesh. We've got to start going back to the law and start obeying the law in order that we will have more favor with God. It's easy to fall into that trap, and we do it all the time. That's exactly what happened to Galatians. In fact, Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, if you just kind of look over, most of us just have to look across the page. It says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? If we have begun the salvation by the Spirit of God, then what in the world makes us think that we've got to finish it out with the flesh? That's nonsense. I mean, just think about this for a moment. I don't know what in the world he would watch on TV right now because everything's pretty much canceled at the moment. But uh, I guess, can you still watch? No, you can't even watch the NBA anymore. You can still watch football, right? So uh, football season's coming up. And I just, I just love Brother Roy so much. You know, he has just been such a, a great friend to me over the years. And so I just want to bless him. So I go to Best Buy and I find the most state-of-the-art 4K uh, HDMI point three, 3.0, whatever it is, and curved screen, all of this. And I walk up and I bring it over to Brother Roy's house. And I say, Brother Roy, I just want to bless you, tell you how much I love you. Here is a gift that I'm giving to you. And he sees it and he's like, oh man, this is awesome. He's like, yeah, bring it in. And, and we get it all set up and we hook it all up. He's like, man, this is awesome. Thank you so much. I'm like, yeah, you're welcome, man. By the way, here's the payment book. And uh, you have, you just enjoy your TV. Wait, whoa, <laughs> payment book? I thought you said it was a gift. Well, it is. I made the down payment. That's not much of a gift, is it? <laughs> that, 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 I mean, he would, he would end up really not liking that gift, right? Well, beloved, in the same way, you can understand why so many people lose their confidence in the gospel because they think of faith alone and Christ alone as nothing more than a down payment, and then they've got to go back and they've got to work their way through the payment book in order to keep it going. 
Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? It just doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. So often we begin well in the Spirit, and yet we start to believe that we're being perfected in the flesh. And it leads to chaos. I just read an article this week from a Modern Reformation magazine, a wonderful magazine, by the way, that I would recommend to anyone. But in the article, it said the loneliness of self-righteousness and talked about how much of a lonely existence self-righteousness is. It leads to chaos. Bottom line is anything that comes from human flesh, anything that comes from human ingenuity can only be flesh. Jesus says this very thing in John when he's talking to Nicodemus in chapter 3. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. If you are trying to be perfected by the flesh, the only thing you're going to accomplish is flesh. It is only those things that are enabled by the spirit that are spiritual. It's only salvation that is empowered, that is applied by the spirit that is salvation, not fleshly works of the law. It is, only, it, is only, uh, it is only sanctification that is powered by the Holy Spirit that glorifies God, not sanctification brought on by law-keeping, pop psychology, or, or take, your, take, your, take your choice. There's so many competitors out there nowadays. That which is born of flesh can only be flesh. And if you begun in the spirit, are you think you're going to be perfected by the flesh? No, if God started it, he continues it and he will bring it to fruition. This principle is found in the Old Testament in the book of Haggai, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Haggai gives this illustration. He says, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, yes, it does become unclean. And watch the, watch the lesson from Haggai in verse 14. He says then, go ahead and turn it over. Is it not working? Huh, maybe we should turn there. Haggai. <laughs> this is why you get a tech guy to do all your technical stuff, because I always mess up. And uh, in Haggai uh, chapter 2 and verse 14, he gave that illustration and then in verse 14, he says, uh, and I'm in Hosea, not in Haggai, so hang on. <laughs> Boy, I'm inspiring you with confidence, aren't I? Uh, so Haggai answers in verse 14 of Haggai chapter 2, and he says, So it is with these people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, so with every work of their hands, what they offer is unclean. In other words, the sin on their flesh, the sin in their spirit, the sin in their soul defiles everything that they try to do for the Lord. This is why Isaiah says that your best righteousness is as filthy rags. The filth on me makes everything I try to do dirty. The example I like to give is that of the Iron Chef. And you guys have heard this example before, but for those of you who haven't, you know, if we were to have a fellowship potluck this week, keeping our distance, of course, 
And uh, boy, special occasion. So we bring in the Iron Chef and he flies into Little Rock and he rents his car and he's on his way. I'm not Mike, so I got to stay here. Uh, he, uh, he, he, he's driving on the way and, and on the way he gets in a wreck and he flies into a sewer pond. And, he, and he's stuck in this thing for, for 30 minutes, just waiting around in it, you know, just trying to get out. So he finally gets out. He gets in his car. He gets here. He starts chopping up all the veggies. He starts massaging all the meat and putting it all out. And man, by the time he's done, there's this beautiful spread, right, on our, on our fellowship table. The only problem is he didn't wash up. He didn't even wash his hands. And no matter how good that food may look, how many of you would eat it? Because the filth on him made everything he did, no matter how good it looks, the filth on him defiled everything he touched. Beloved, the same way as with us, when we try to perfect ourselves in the flesh, the sin that we have defiles everything. We try to do for the Lord. So Hagar was a slave. She was always a slave and she can only bear slaves. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Only that which is born of spirit is spirit. So when I ask this morning, just that's about as far as we can get this morning. So let me just ask you, first of all, whether you are a believer or not. Maybe you're here this morning and you're you believe that your good deeds are, are making you fit for heaven. My good deeds are going to outweigh my bad. I'm, I'm a pretty decent guy. I don't smoke. I don't chew. I don't date the girls who do. I, uh, I've never cheated on my wife. I've never cheated on my taxes. I've never, you know, take your, I've never murdered anyone. Take your pick. I help old ladies across the street. I'm just a good guy. You know what? From the world's perspective, you are. I'm not denying that. But you need to understand that all the good you do is ruined by the sin of your nature. You need to understand that you're a slave, that you're in the flesh, and all you can produce is flesh. And your best righteousness, the best things you can do, is nothing more than filthy rags. Your mother is Hagar. She's a slave. Was never free. She always will be a slave. And any children she bears is a slave. And she's your mother. But there's another mother. And that is the mother of Isaac, the children of promise. And just as Abraham had faith in God and through that faith in the promise, the promised child was born. So in the same way, beloved, that when you put your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can be born again. Born a second time. Born from above. Citizens of the Jerusalem above. It's not about who you are. It's not about what you do. It's about whose you are. And all the good you do can't change your identity. Can't change your slavery. Maybe you're a Christian here this morning. Beloved, don't be tempted to think that our good works gives us more and greater righteous standing with God. 
You say, are you saying we're not supposed to obey? No, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that even after we have been saved for a hundred years, we never outgrow the gospel. We never outgrow the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. And if we're relying on anything else for our righteousness, if we're relying on anything else to make us holy, then we have fallen into this trap. And that's an easy trap to fall into. If our obedience is coming from anything other than love, if our obedience is coming from a desire to get blessings from God, to get favor with God, to garner uh, approval from God, might have fallen into this trap. I just want to ask you to examine our hearts this morning. This is the first and most important response to the law. That is that we must rely on his promise, not on the works of our flesh. So I'm going to ask you this morning about your heads just very quickly. I'm just going to ask you to Consider our own hearts this morning and ask yourself this question, whether are you relying on the flesh? Are you trying to garner favor with God by the flesh? Or are you relying on the promise of the gospel? Are you living out through the power of the gospel? Are you relying on his promise and his promise alone? That's the message of the law. It's not to teach you how to earn favor, not to teach you how to be righteous. It's to show you that you need another's righteousness. And that's the very righteousness that Christ offers to you. Our Father, we thank you for these words. I I know I have not given this majestic passage justice this morning. Lord, I pray if there's one here that through my weakness they have felt your strength. They are becoming convicted of their sin. They're understanding that no matter how much good they do, they're still a slave. They can be the best sailor in the world. It doesn't matter if they're on a pirate ship. So Lord, they need a new, they need a new boat. They need a new citizenship. They need a new, a new birth. And I pray this morning you will give that to them. And Lord, for us who know you, may we never outgrow the gospel. The gospel is just as much for us as it is for unbelievers. It is the gift that continually gives every day. And I pray that you will help us to know you more. Not by trying to earn favor with you. But Lord, through meditating through reflecting and through knowing you through the gospel it is in your name we pray let's stand and sing this song